Hello, and welcome to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other artistic athletes. This is Dr. Linda Bluestein here with co-host Jennifer Milner. We have a very special guest to introduce to you today, but we would first like to remind you about how you can help us help you. First, subscribe to the Bendy Bodies podcast and leave us a review. This is helpful for raising awareness about hypermobility and associated disorders. Second, share the Bendy Bodies podcast with your friends, family, and providers. We really appreciate you helping us grow our audience in order to make a meaningful difference. This podcast is for you. Our very special guest today is Beth Darnell, PhD, Director of the Stanford Pain Relief Innovations Lab. She leads NIH and PCORI-funded clinical trials that broadly investigate behavioral medicine for acute and chronic pain, including a $9 million multi-state trial on voluntary patient-centered prescription opioid reduction. Dr. Darnell's primary interests are developing and investigating novel pain treatments that are scalable, effective, and low burden. She and her team lead international workshops to train clinicians to deliver the single-session evidence-based pain relief skills class called Empowered Relief. Empowered Relief is available in English, French, and Spanish and exists in healthcare systems in the U.S. and in Australia, the U.K., Denmark, and Canada, and is the subject of international research. The broad goal of this collective line of research is to dismantle barriers to effective behavioral medicine for pain and health. Dr. Danau's work has been featured in outlets such as Scientific American, NPR Radio, BBC Radio, and Nature. In 2018, she spoke on the psychology of pain relief at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Hello, and welcome to the Bendy Bodies podcast. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. Great. And it's great to see you, Jen. Yes. Good to see you as always. All right. Very good. So um, Dr. Darnell, our podcast is for people living on the hypermobility spectrum, um, many of whom live with daily pain. So we want to jump right in and ask um, why the problem of chronic pain you know, has not been solved yet, and what needs to happen in order for people to have less pain? Yeah, well, um, great questions to, to kick it off. And you know, I, I was recently asked um, what was missing in terms of how we're addressing chronic pain clinically and also in our research. And I think that there's some, some big, broad opportunities. Um, we have not been studying pain comprehensively. And so that really needs to change so that we're not just... Um, investigating and treating pain from a biomedical perspective, but we are appreciating that it is a whole person experience. And what I mean by that is that um, even though pain has a medical basis, it's profoundly influenced by a whole host of factors. It's influenced by everything that's happening in our lives and our environment and our thoughts and our emotions and um, our stress levels and whether or not we're sleeping well or able to engage in activity. Um, so the extent to which we appreciate that pain is a whole person experience with 
broad, comprehensive targets, we can then begin characterizing the needs and the opportunities within each individual and the opportunity to treat pain better by delivering targeted treatments that address the needs, the specific needs of that person. So I think that's the most exciting thing. You know, it's a real opportunity to think about pain more broadly, more comprehensively, so that we're addressing it, treating it better. Sure. And, and I know that um, a lot of times when people are going to the doctor with chronic pain, they might have a difficult time even getting an accurate diagnosis. We know that healthcare right now is, you know, we're struggling with, with a lot of things, especially right now with, with COVID still going on. And sometimes people don't really know where to start. When you talk about a multidimensional assessment, can you go into a little bit more detail about why that's so necessary in diagnosing and treating chronic pain? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in a perfect world with each person, we're really characterizing every domain of their life. And then we can examine pain within that context so that we can understand, you know, what is a person's mood? Um, do they have anxiety? How, how is their sleep quality? Um, are they in a relationship? What are they working? What's the stress level in the home? Um, what's, what's a daily um, level of activity? How is nutrition? What are financial stresses, for instance? And so with that information of understanding a whole person's life, um, we can better understand the experience of their pain within that context and then address those factors. So I'll just give you um, a, a one nugget as an example is that one of the best predictors of a person's pain on any given day is the quality of the sleep that they achieved the night before. So it's, you know, people living with chronic pain will understand this cycle. If, if we have a poor night's sleep, we're more sensitive to pain the next day. Pain has a greater impact. We're also likely to have more fatigue. And when we're fatigued, we're less likely to engage in movement or exercise. Um, as we move less, that impacts our mood, and it also contributes to us having poor sleep that next night. And so we can quickly get into these automatic cycles that become self-reinforcing, and it's not because we want more pain, and it's not because we asked for more pain, and it's not because we're doing anything wrong. This happens naturally and automatically um, within the context of how pain operates biologically and physiologically and psychologically. So the more that we dive in and understand what's happening with each individual, we can then identify opportunities. Okay, so a person is not sleeping well. What can we do to help that person improve their sleep? So um, for, um, for, for instance, in, in some cases, um, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, that, that's a first line treatment for sleep problems, but that might not be well appreciated. 
People might think more about taking a medication for sleep, when in fact, um, there are things that we can do ourselves to help us sleep better. Um, but in order to, to um, connect with that, you know, we, we have to source that information and know how to get how to get this specific type of treatment. And so all of this to say, if we don't do that multidimensional assessment, we won't know what the therapeutic target is. And then we will be failing to connect the person with the information that they needed about how to help themselves sleep better. Um, so I'm a, you know, my background is I'm a pain psychologist as a, as a clinician, even though I largely do, I, I do research at this stage, but for 15 years focusing on treating chronic pain, um, using behavioral treatments that fundamentally focus on providing patients with education, skills-based, actionable information so that people can learn how to best help themselves, not to the exclusion of medical treatments, but so that maybe we need fewer medical treatments and so that when medical treatments are tried, they're more likely to work better because as the patient, we're doing everything we can um, to help ourselves and to get our health on track. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. I know when I often mention those kinds of things with people, there's a lot of, there's so much stigma surrounding chronic pain, right? So that is one of the really um, challenging things. And I try to explain that there's so many variables involved. It's not as simple as just taking a single pill that's going to take away all your pain. We haven't found the magic pill yet because there, there isn't one because it's so um, multifactorial. So with with people that have hypermobility disorders too, they can often have, you know, multiple different causes of pain in their in their body. So they might have chronic pain, but then have kind of acute on chronic if they have a dislocation or a subluxation or something like that. For people that have, that are living in pain, do you have any you know um, suggestions of of some of the best ways that um, that their pain can be treated besides you know um, that excellent example about the sleep. Yes. Um, so some low hanging fruit is, um, you know, get a great evaluation, um, have a great uh, medical team in place. Ideally, a medical team that brings, um, you know, this comprehensive perspective of a biopsychosocial approach. Um, treating pain well and, and living well within the context of complex medical conditions really requires having, um, you know, a, a healthcare team where different perspectives and approaches are integrated. Um, now, you know, this, there's always challenges in, in various areas of the country. It's hard to bring together all of these experts. Um, but the extent to which one can is obviously advantageous. And so that maybe in your area, you're not able to necessarily work with a local 
psychologist who is skilled in pain management. Um, but if your physician understands the biopsychosocial perspective, they may be able to bring forward to you resources, whether those are in print or whether those are online classes, um, digital support groups. And there are many different ways to access information about, you know, how to best move with uh, hypermobility. Um, how does one exercise when, you know, certain exercises can actually cause pain or flare pain. And so understanding the limitations of the specific disorder or condition, but still being able to do what you can within the context of that um, problem, um, similarly from the behavioral perspective. So you want to have a great medical perspective. You want to have that um, the, the physical therapy or the movement perspective. You want to have the um, a, a behavioral or uh, psychology perspective. Um, another way to, to talk about it is the self-management perspective. So I kind of put all of this in a bucket because sometimes people don't just feel stigmatized about pain. They feel stigmatized about psychology. You're telling me to go see a psychologist. I have a medical condition. Why are you telling me to do this? This is not in my head. I have a real problem. And my response to that over and over again universally is, yes, you have a medical problem. And there are things you can do to help yourself that um, this is vitally important to help you achieve your best quality of life within the context of a complex medical condition. And, and that's what the behavioral perspective is all about. It's not about blaming. It's not about judging. It's not about saying things are all in your head. It's about I recognizing that there's a very nice opportunity to learn what you can do to help yourself. Because the truth is, living with chronic pain and living with medical conditions, it changes our lives. It um, can prevent us from doing the things that we love. There can be losses um, in, in terms of social connections, professional connections, even a loss of identity that we might have had with ourselves. There can be a, a loss in roles that we had within the context of social relationships. How do we navigate all of this? And there's support for this. That's the most important thing to know is that the profession of um, psychology or behavioral medicine or self-management, it's, it's, it's really about empowering people to um, be able to make best choices um, and to have best support to navigate some of these challenging circumstances. I'm so glad you touched on that because I have several clients with EDS or someplace along the spectrum and a frustration for them has often been going to doctors and having the doctors say, oh, the pain is in your head. You know, I don't understand what you're saying. Like, I don't see anything. You must be fine. And so approaching the psychological portion and saying, hey, have you found someone to talk to can often make them feel like you're saying, have you found someone to fix the voices in your head that are telling you you're in pain? So, but it is so important to find support 
for that psych for the psychological piece as well. Like you said, the, the medical, the psychological, the, the movement pieces all fit together. So I really appreciate that. And I know that that's, that's been some of the work that you have done um, that I want to get to now. Um, in your book, the, the Opioid Free Pain Relief Kit, 10 Simple Steps to Ease Your Pain, there's a description that says, people who think pills are the only answer are mistaken because the best treatment for chronic pain includes much more than pills. In fact, the most important part of pain treatment is not your medication or even your doctor, it is you. And this book gives you the right roadmap and skills to help you reduce your own pain so you need less medication. It's a formula for success, your own personal pain relief kit. I love this. I would buy that book right there just based on that description. <laughs> I feel empowered already. Uh, so what are some things that people with chronic pain are doing that might be hindering their own progress and what things should they be doing instead? Boy, it's a great, um, great question, Jennifer. And I just want to say, you know, we, we go to our doctors and um, we get treatment and we may even get prescriptions. Um, but those treatments and those um, medical visits just happen very sporadically. It's what we do in the day to day. It's all of our daily choices influence everything, how much pain we feel, how well we're going to sleep. So, you know, just, just to roll with that sleep um, kind of example and metaphor. Um, so I may have poor sleep and I may just be focusing on the fact that I'm not sleeping well and I need some intervention for that. But if I start taking a look at what I'm doing, and this is an actual example, if I start taking a look at what I'm doing, it's like, oh, well, I'm on the computer late. I'm getting a lot of bright light. I'm also maybe eating later in the evening. Um, you know, I, I may have had an, a, a drink of alcohol and um, there's a common perception that alcohol can aid sleep because it, it's associated with sedation and feeling drowsy. But in fact, when alcohol is metabolized, it actually, um, as it's being metabolized, it um, creates a sense of alertness within the body. So that's one of the reasons why people who drink alcohol have disrupted sleep. You may get to sleep quicker, but you're going to have a poorer quality of sleep because you will not achieve those deeper stages of sleep. So that's just one example, for instance, of, of things that one can do is putting each... Um, each factor under the microscope. So we put all of our, um, you know, the lead up to sleep time under the microscope and look for the opportunities. What can I change? So I'm going to, you know, turn off my computer and my phone an hour before sleep. I'm going to avoid alcohol and, you know, not drink it um, at night and maybe bump my um, meal time earlier in the evening. Other things that people can do who have chronic pain, taking a look at um, our stress levels and our tension levels. And um, so it's very common when we have chronic pain to carry quite a bit of tension in our bodies. In part, that is because the human body is designed to react to pain by bracing against it. It's a protective reaction to pain. Um, we're, we're just hardwired for this. And then when we have pain ongoingly, it becomes um, more of a neuromuscular pattern where we're storing tension in our bodies. 
And the reason why this is problematic is because when we have that stored tension, it um, actually contributes to us um, being more sensitive to pain and also being more reactive to pain once uh, it occurs. So, that, so what that would mean, I'll just kind of break it down simply, is that we might um, be more um, sensitive to having a pain flare and then for having greater reactions to it when it occurs. So this is just an opportunity for us to begin identifying how much tension and stress do we carry in our body and to apply various tools so that we can downregulate that so that we can start working with mind and body to introduce deeper states of relaxation. And the reason for that is that relaxation, scientifically proven to reduce pain processing in the central nervous system in real time. And then when we have deeper states of relaxation, which means less tension, um, less stress, in, um, in our muscles and in our body, that leads to um, reduced pain over time. This, you know, this is a type of skill and strategy that of course isn't going to cure one's medical condition, but what it can do is both reduce pain-related distress and reduce, for some people, actual pain intensity over time so that one can live better with this medical condition. Mm-hmm. That's so, um, that's so, imp- I think it's so important that that paradigm shift of rather than thinking, I have a headache, what can I do to make the headache stop hurting now, to going to what has caused this and what long-term changes can I make and really looking at sort of the long-term program of it um, rather than just trying to keep putting on Band-Aids is what it sounds like you're saying is making a huge paradigm shift to that, that long-term focus. I think, you know, you, you stated it really nicely, Jennifer, is that I, I think, you know, a lot of times people, um, you know, it, this is a human tendency is that we'll think, well, I, my pain is really severe. What should I do? Oh, there was some relaxation technique. Maybe I'll try that. And, you know, it may or may not work in the moment when we're truly suffering. It is a shift in mindset towards more of prevention and overall wellness. Um, Any one strategy may or may not work in the moment, but when we start investing time and energy into applying a skill set on a daily basis, on a regular basis, that's when we start reaping the rewards. And this is really and truly underappreciated. It doesn't require a whole lot of time But what the research shows is that we do need to dedicate a bit of time each day um, to using these types of skills, say 15 to 20 minutes a day. And when that investment is made over the course of a few months, we see that people gain benefits. And it makes sense if we think about it, like we didn't acquire all of this tension and and stress overnight. These neuromuscular patterns develop over time and they similarly take some time to de-pattern. And so that's, that's probably my biggest hurdle as a psychologist is 
helping people understand that it does take um, several weeks to rewire the nervous system and to help people stay on track, not to focus on what's happening just right there in the moment and then judging whether it's effective or not right there in the moment. Um, and I, I can give you an example of that. I don't want to take all of our time, but I, I could share the results of a scientific study if you're interested in hearing about that. So there was um, a study conducted um, by some researchers where they wanted to understand how does cognitive behavioral therapy change the central nervous system. We know that it's beneficial for chronic pain of many different types, um, but they really wanted to quantify how does this change what's happening in the central nervous system. And so these researchers um, were studying people with chronic low back pain and they scanned their brains before they received um, 11 weeks of cognitive behavioral therapy and then they scanned their brains post-treatment 11 weeks later. And what cognitive behavioral therapy is, it's a um, people will, would come to a class once a week for 11 weeks. This is usually one to two hours in duration. And a lot of different information and skills are learned in each class. And so people would learn the information, such as relaxation or to identify how they're thinking and feeling within the context of pain and working to calm their nervous system. And um, in receiving this information and applying these skills over the course of weeks. So here's what the researchers found. They found that at baseline, people with chronic pain evidenced volumetric deficits in the regions of the brain associated with pain control. Um, and this has been found by multiple researchers of different different um, pain conditions. But what was interesting was that 11 weeks later, after people received this treatment and were using these skills over the course of 11 weeks, they found substantial um, volumetric increases in those same regions of the brain associated with pain control. So people literally were altering the structure of the brain favorably within three months time. And that they didn't just see these changes on the scans, it correlated with the participants' report of having less pain. And what was most interesting to me is that these results, these brain changes, were entirely mediated by people reporting that they were having less distressing thoughts about pain. They were focusing less on their pain. They learned strategies and techniques um, to be able to identify when they were having kind of a negative thoughts or a negative mindset and to be able to self-soothe in the moment. And this is important because if we get into patterns of distress, that is unwittingly not just increasing our distress, but it amplifies pain processing. So learning these techniques to dampen pain processing in the moment and then applying those techniques over the course of weeks, that's what gets people lasting results. That's mm. what literally changes the structure of the nervous system over time. But it takes a few months. That, that's so interesting. And I know that you have um, the book out, but I know you've also created the program Empowered Relief. So um, how can people access that program? And can you tell us a little bit about it? 
Yeah, so uh, recognizing that people don't have access to 11 weeks of cognitive behavioral therapy, um, I developed a very compressed um, single session uh, class that rapidly equips patients with um, actionable pain management skills um, that are included in, in the study that I just mentioned. So what I recognized was that look, we know what works. We just aren't delivering it in a format that's mm. accessible at a population level. And this is what needs to change. And so, um, so I developed a single session class so that a hundred people can be treated at once and family members can be included. It's, it's, uh, it's a class, so it's not group therapy. And for that reason, um, because it's education and skills-based, people are generally receptive to just coming to a class and learning about it. Um, and they don't even have to share information about themselves if they don't want to. Um, because of COVID, now we're delivering these classes online. Um, Empowered Relief is available at Stanford University. It's available in many healthcare organizations across the United States. It's available in five countries and three languages now. Um, what we don't have is just an online version where anyone in the United States can dial in to Empowered Relief. We're actually working on that, and that may happen um, in the next year. But for right now, people don't have the ability to just hit a link and get into Empowered Relief. They need to find a provider in their community, a certified Empowered Relief provider. And so on the Empowered Relief website, it's empoweredrelief.com. People can go to find a provider, look in their country, in their state, and see if there's a local certified provider where they can get this single session class. Um, we also have some um, active studies at Stanford University. So if someone's interested in actually joining one of our studies, that's another way that they may be able to get access to it. And as a, a final backup, um, people can get the information in print form. You, you mm. mentioned the book, The Opioid-Free Pain Relief Kit. Um, so, so that's actually kind of a, a compressed print form of the information that people would access in the Empowered Relief class. So, oh, nice. you know, it's just, it's, it's different ways to access the information, but that's a nice, that's a nice way that people can get it right away. That's excellent. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to share about where people can find out about the work that you are doing, how they can find you on the internet. Uh, we will post all of your links and everything as well with the podcast, but what would you like to share about that? Oh, thank you for that opportunity. I do have a website. It's bethdarnell.com. Um, I also have a lab website at Stanford University. I can give you that link, which okay. um, talks about some of our studies. Um, I, I'm pretty accessible on Twitter as well um, for anyone who, who has social media. Um, so hopefully with all of these resources, people can find out about what we're doing and also have a way to reach out with any questions if they'd like to ask me directly. Excellent. Was there anything you wanted to add for today? Well, I just want to thank you so much for having me on your great show and for um, featuring this behavioral perspective um, to your audience. And so thanks for the opportunity and keep up the great work. 
Thank you. And you have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. Today, we've been speaking with Dr. Beth Darnell, Director of the Stanford Pain Relief Innovation Labs. We are so grateful, Dr. Beth Darnell, for you taking the time to come on the Bendy Bodies podcast and sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other artistic athletes. Please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Remember to subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the Bendy Bodies YouTube channel as well. Thank you for helping us spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions. Visit our website, www.bendybodies.org, for more information. For a limited time, you could win an autographed copy of the popular textbook, Disjointed, Navigating the Diagnosis and Management of Hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and Hypermobility Spectrum Disorders just by sharing what you love about the Bendy Bodies podcast. On Instagram, tag us at bendy underscore bodies and on Facebook at Bendy Bodies Podcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the co-hosts and their guests. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. The thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. This podcast is intended for general education only and does not constitute medical advice. Your own individual situation may vary. Do not make any changes without first seeking your own individual care from your physician. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies Podcast.